Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello, and thank you for joining us for the Friday, January 21st, 2022 reading of the Human Health Program. My name is Emily Crocker. On today's program, Pfizer and Moderna boosters overwhelmingly prevent Omicron hospitalizations from Axios. And am I asymptomatic or do I just really not want to have COVID-19? A guide from Vox. Plus, seven worst habits for your brain from AARP magazine. And additional articles, time permitting. Here's our first report. CDC says Pfizer and Moderna boosters overwhelmingly prevent Omicron hospitalizations by Aaron Doherty from Axios. Booster doses of the Pfizer-BioNTech and Moderna vaccines overwhelmingly prevented hospitalizations from the Omicron variant, according to new data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Pfizer and Moderna boosters were 90% effective at preventing Americans infected with the Omicron variant from ending up in the hospital, according to the data. The booster shots also reduced the likelihood of a visit to an emergency department or urgent care clinic in the first place and were especially effective in preventing death among Americans over age 50. Protection against infection and hospitalization with the Omicron variant is higher for those who are up to date with their vaccination, said CDC Director Rochelle Walensky, citing the new data. There are still millions of people who are eligible for booster dose and have not received one. As we continue to face the Omicron variant, I urge all who are eligible to get their booster shot to get it as soon as possible, Walensky said. The data come as the highly contagious Omicron variant rapidly spread across the country over the last month. While the Omicron wave in the U.S. may be peaking, COVID deaths are still climbing. Up next, am I asymptomatic or do I just really not want to have COVID-19? A guide. Asymptomatic means you really, truly have no symptoms. By Ali Volpe from Vox. In vaccinated and boosted people, breakthrough COVID-19 cases can often be quite mild, akin to an annoying cold. These relatively manageable symptoms can result in infected people dismissing a slightly scratchy throat and perhaps foregoing testing. The what is a symptom question is also impacting those who do test positive, with new federal guidelines relying on symptoms as a deciding factor in whether you go back to work or stay home after testing positive for COVID-19, especially for essential workers and those who don't have paid time off. In December 2021, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention changed its recommendations for isolation after a positive test, with the number of days someone must isolate being largely dependent on the presence of symptoms. Now, people who test positive but do not develop symptoms must isolate for just five days. If they remain asymptomatic, they can end isolation after five days, but continue to wear a mask around others at home and in public for another five days. To help you better understand what counts as a symptom, Vox spoke to three experts. No symptoms means you feel your best. 
defined by the CDC as when a person is infected with a virus and will never feel any symptoms at all, asymptomatic has become a catch-all phrase for those who feel fine and aren't exhibiting any of the common markers of COVID-19, lack of taste or smell, dry cough, fever, but still test positive and appear to be capable of spreading the virus. In the age of Omicron, when symptoms can be almost imperceptible, asymptomatic means absolutely no sniffles, cough, or aches of any kind. Asymptomatic means you feel in your best shape ever, says Jorge Salinas, an assistant professor of medicine and hospital epidemiologist at Stanford University. You are doing great. You feel amazing. Nothing bothers you, he says. Because community transmission is so high right now, it's best to assume you've been exposed to someone who has COVID-19 if you've been to a public place recently, Salinas says. Everyone should act as though they've come in contact with the virus and are potentially infected, and if anything feels off beyond your normal aches and pains, like your chronic lower back pain or regular migraines, you should consider it a symptom. Tolerance for pain or illness varies from person to person, What one person considers a mild cold might feel like a more disruptive flu to another, and a little throat tickle may not ping as sick to you in ordinary circumstances. But these aren't ordinary circumstances. No matter the severity, any cough, sneeze, headache, or body ache should be viewed as a symptom. What we often find in people who are vaccinated and get COVID is they think they are asymptomatic, but when you talk to them, they have had a slight cough they thought was allergies, they had a little bit of a runny nose, they had a little bit of a sore throat, says John D. Goldman, an infectious disease specialist at University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. There are a lot of people who either truly have no symptoms or have such minor symptoms that they don't think that they're sick enough to have COVID, he says. One part of the problem is that medical professionals struggle to offer more concrete guidelines on how to categorize asymptomatic. Currently, there are no data available to define asymptomatic, which can be different in different people, given that many have chronic respiratory symptoms as baseline, from congestive heart failure to allergies, says Michael David, assistant professor of medicine and epidemiology in the Perelman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. The key is to determine any differences between how you feel on your best days and right now. However, experts admit, this comparison is no simple task. If you typically have a runny nose after biking to work in the cold, it's difficult to gauge whether today's runny nose is normal or an indicator of something more serious. If you really start thinking about it, we all have a little thing here and there, Selena says. It is exceedingly difficult to really say that somebody's asymptomatic, he says. Make sure you know what COVID-19 symptoms can look like. Knowing the signs of COVID-19 is crucial to monitoring your own symptoms or lack thereof. According to the CDC, symptoms of COVID-19 include fever, shortness of breath, cough, loss of taste or smell, fatigue, body aches, headaches, sore throat, congestion, nausea, or vomiting, and diarrhea. Omicron symptoms tend to stray slightly, with data out of South Africa indicating that people with Omicron experience a scratchy or sore throat, nasal congestion, dry cough, and muscle pain, including low back pain. 
other experts have said to look out for a runny nose and or headache. It's also wise to take note of the overall number of symptoms you're experiencing. The more symptoms you have, the more likely it's a respiratory infection, Selena says. A combination of sore throat, headache, and sniffles is likely not a coincidence. While monitoring how you feel day to day can help you catch symptoms as they emerge, ironically, by thinking too much about how you're feeling, you could start tricking yourself into manifesting symptoms. The combination of anxiety and overthinking can lead you to magnify every little ache and pain, Selena says. The only way to know for sure is to get tested. If you've already tested positive, the best way to gauge your symptoms is to retest five days after first testing positive. If you need meds to manage your symptoms, you have symptoms. Congestion that you're treating with DayQuil or a headache that necessitates taking pain relievers is a red flag you're experiencing a symptom, Goldman says. Not only are you feeling less than your best, you're also hiding that crucial information from your family, coworkers, roommates, and yourself. If you're masking the symptoms, you're more likely to go to work, you're more likely to do things that will spread the disease, he says. Taking Tylenol, doing something to deal with the symptoms, is certainly not going to hurt you. It may just be that you go outside and you aren't aware you're sick and spread it to someone else, he says. He recommends getting tested to confirm Insurance companies must now pay for eight at-home tests a month per family member, and Americans can now order free at-home tests, and doing everything you can to avoid others while you feel sick. Continue to rely on tried-and-true mitigation methods. For people who think they may be experiencing symptoms but need to leave the house, the safest way to move about society requires wearing a high-quality mask around others, Selena says, and isolating to the extent that you can. At this stage in the pandemic, Americans desperately need universal paid sick leave and free and easily accessible testing. Until that happens, individuals will unfairly remain responsible for interpreting their symptoms as best they can. Unless you're able to regularly test, take note of how you're feeling every day and continue to mask up in public settings. If you feel healthy without pain relievers and cold medicines, considering your own circumstances and history, you can safely assume you're without symptoms, experts say. Anything less than your best means you should take every sniffle, ache, or cough seriously. Up next, seven worst habits for your brain. Bad choices and everyday missteps could be harming your cognition. Here's how to combat several of them by Nicole Padger from AARP, the magazine. You already know that a bad diet and a permanent indentation on the couch aren't good for your brain, but there are some lesser-known daily routines that could be undermining your cognition, says Jessica Caldwell, a neuropsychologist and director of the Women's Alzheimer's Movement Prevention Center at the Cleveland Clinic. Altering just one of these habits could change how your brain works and help you age healthier and better. And it's never too late to start. Even people with memory issues can benefit from altering harmful behaviors. Bad habit one, you accentuate the negative. Ruminating on grudges, resentments, and negative thoughts won't just keep you in a pessimistic mood. It has also been linked to decline in cognition and memory in people 55 and older, 
according to a study in the journal Alzheimer's and Dementia. Participants who repeatedly dwelled on negative thoughts had more amyloid and tau deposits in their brain, the biological markers of Alzheimer's disease. Everyone engages in repetitive negative thinking to some degree. It's part of the human experience, and not everyone will develop Alzheimer's, says lead researcher and research psychologist Natalie Marchant. But it's also a changeable behavior, according to Patty Johnson, a psychologist in Los Angeles and creator of the anxiety relief app Emma, the emotional manager for anxiety. She suggests that the next time you're overtaken by negative thoughts, you should make a list of five specific things that you are grateful for and focus on those. Take some deep belly breaths. Try a new task or change your focus to something in your environment. Greet a negative thought when it pops up with "hello," then verbally tell it goodbye. Bad habit two: you skip your vaccines. It's estimated that more than half of Americans blew off the flu shot during the 2018 to 19 flu season, and we know how many people are hesitant about getting the COVID-19 vaccine. But opting out of vaccinations may be a missed opportunity in the fight against dementia. For people between ages 75 and 84, influenza vaccination was associated with a reduced likelihood of developing Alzheimer's disease. According to research led by Paul Schultz, M.D., a neurologist at McGovern Medical School at the University of Texas Health Science Center in Houston, other researchers have found that adults ages 65 to 75 who had received the pneumonia vaccination had a 25 to 30 percent reduction in their chance of developing Alzheimer's. More research is needed to understand whether vaccinations play a role in protecting cognition. Says Rebecca Edelmeier, senior director of scientific engagement for the Alzheimer's Association. But the takeaway here, Edelmeier says, is that vaccinations are one of the most studied and well-tested preventive care measures for your health. Bad habit three: you drink sugary beverages. If your usual breakfast includes a tall glass of orange juice, take note. A 2017 study associated sugary beverage consumption with poorer episodic memory, as well as lower total brain volume and hippocampal volume. So avoid soda and sweet tea, and take it easy on the juice. Even though fruit juice retains some beneficial phytonutrients, it's primarily a sugary drink without the benefit of fiber, says Annie Fenn, M.D., the founder of Brain Health Kitchen. A cooking school and community for Alzheimer's prevention. Consuming sugary drinks may lead to a spiking blood sugar and an exaggerated insulin response in many people, which she says may trigger chronic inflammation in the brain. It may be far better to eat whole fruits, not their juices. A small orange provides 2.5 grams of fiber to balance its 9 grams of sugar. Fenn explains. When you consume the equivalent amount of orange juice, the fiber has been strained out. She says. Bad habit four: you have unhealthy sleep habits. Quality sleep is crucial to a sharp and productive mind, according to the Global Council on Brain Health. Consistency is one important marker of good quality sleep. Go to bed and wake up at the same time every day. Shift work, changing time zones. Chronic stress and too much caffeine or alcohol can all throw off your rhythm. 
so too can sleeping in a room that's not cool or dark enough. And if you have symptoms of sleep apnea, such as snoring or daytime sleepiness, see a doctor. Abnormalities in oxygen level can be damaging to nerve cells, which may accelerate over time and contribute to more memory and cognitive issues, says Elan Avedan, MD, director of the Sleep Disorder Center at the University of California, Los Angeles. Bad Habit 5. You crank up your headphones. If it's bad for your ears, it could very well be bad for your brain. In a study of 639 adults ages 36 to 90, mild hearing loss was associated with a nearly twofold likelihood of dementia. As a rule, if someone else can hear sound from your earbuds, they're too loud, says Nicholas Reed, assistant professor at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. He also recommends carrying a pair of foam earplugs with you and using them at concerts or sporting events and removing yourself from loud environments when possible. If you are standing within three feet of someone and you can't hear them, the world around you is too loud, he says. Bad Habit 6. You regularly take this type of medicine. A wide array of drugs, including tricyclic antidepressants, some overactive bladder medications, and some over-the-counter antihistamines, can block the actions of acetylcholine, a brain chemical important for learning and memory. A study found that a higher cumulative use of these drugs was associated with increased incidence of dementia. If you regularly take a drug in one of these categories, don't panic, says Yuko Hara, director of aging and Alzheimer's prevention with the Alzheimer's Drug Discovery Foundation. But if you regularly take a number of these, it makes sense to ask your doctor about the risk of anticholinergics and to discuss whether you should explore alternative medications or other options. Bad Habit 7. You don't have a sense of purpose. Bosses, kids, spouses, when we're younger, it seems like everyone is relying on us. But when we get older, freedom from those responsibilities can have a darker side as well. Having a reason to get up in the morning, knowing that people are depending upon you, feeling that you are making important contributions can contribute to healthy aging, explains Scott Kaiser, MD, a geriatrician at Providence St. John's Health Center in Santa Monica, California. Researchers at the Rush Alzheimer's Disease Center in Chicago found an association in people who scored high on a purpose-in-life assessment. They were approximately 2.4 times more likely to remain Alzheimer's-free than those with low scores. If you're feeling a distinct lack of purpose, do your brain a huge favor by embracing some new responsibilities, says Carla Marie Manley, a clinical psychologist in Santa Rosa, California. Find a new opportunity by using the time and energy not spent on child-rearing or working to get a pet, explore a passion project, volunteer, or travel, she says. Up next, exercise slows progression, cognitive decline in early Parkinson's by Batya Swift-Yasgur, MA, LSW, from Medscape Medical News. Just one to two hours of moderate to vigorous exercise twice a week appears to slow disease progression and cognitive decline in patients with early Parkinson's disease, or PD, according to new research. Investigators followed more than 200 patients with early-stage PD for up to six years, assessing exercise levels at baseline 
and throughout the study period. They found those who engaged in four hours of moderate to vigorous exercise per week had a slower decline in postural and gait stability and processing speed five years later versus their peers with lower exercise levels. Even those who were physically active one to two hours twice weekly experienced slower disease progression compared with those who were physically active for one hour. The maintenance of regular physical activity levels and exercise habits is the critical part to improve the disease course of PD over five years. In other words, regular physical activity and exercise habits, even in small doses, can make a difference when maintained, lead author Kazuto Zukida, MD, of the Department of Neurology, Graduate School of Medicine at Kyoto University, Japan, told Medscape Medical News. The message I would like to convey to PD patients is please continue to engage in physical activity, even in small amounts. It's never too late to start doing something physically active, Zukita said. The study was published online in the journal Neurology. Up next, do you really need to devein shrimp? That little tube is actually their digestive tract, and those little dark spots you see are waste. By Claire Lower from Lifehacker. Most needs are actually deep wants. I don't need Malden salt, but my scrambled eggs aren't the same without the crunchy flakes. I don't need to remove every germ from every garlic clove, but doing so can reduce bitterness. I don't need an inflatable hot tub, but I bought one anyway. Do I need to devein every shrimp I cook and eat? I feel like I do, but technically I do not. What is that little vein anyway? The vein that runs down the back of a shrimp is not part of its circulatory system. Shrimp have an open circulatory system. Their blood does not flow through veins like yours and mine. That little tube is actually their digestive tract, and those little dark spots you see are, I am sorry to say, waste. If you were to eat it raw, the bacteria in said waste could make you a little sick. Cook it, however, and the shrimp is safe to eat, vain and all. If you've ever ordered peel-and-eat shrimp, you have probably consumed a little shrimp waste, and you may not have even noticed it. The vein isn't always visible from the outside, and unless the shrimp is very big and its digestive tract is full of grit, usually undetectable. So why remove it? The ick factor is quite high here. Even though shrimp waste is one of the less offensive forms of animal waste, it's still poop, and I will never encourage anyone to eat poop. It's just not in my nature. Besides that, and overall aesthetics, the waste can feel gritty in between your teeth. This is primarily a concern with the big boys, but luckily, large and jumbo shrimp are pretty easy to devein. Whether you want to spend your time deveining small and medium shrimp, well, that's up to you. The easiest way around this whole situation is to buy deveined shrimp. It does cost a little more because you are paying for the labor someone else is performing. And it can be hard to find deveined shrimp with the shell still on. The shells contribute flavor and can also help prevent the shrimp from overcooking. But if you want to give deveining a go, or if you accidentally bought a bag of veiny shrimp, here is how to devein raw shrimp. Removing the digestive tract of a raw shrimp is actually pretty easy, though a little tedious. Starting at the head end, make an incision through the shell down the back of the shrimp to the base of the tail 
either with a sharp paring knife or a scissor, then spread the shell and meat apart and fish out the tract with the tip of your blade or a toothpick. Pull it out and repeat it with the rest of your shrimp. You can also devein cooked shrimp in pretty much the same way. Cook and chill your shrimp. Make the same incision down the back of your shrimp, split it open, and pull the vein out. Happy eating. Thank you for joining us for the Human Health Program. My name is Emily Crocker.